never good to pull out a single verse of Scripture without understanding the context. So allow me to quickly touch on the backstory here. This is the uh, 22nd Cliff Notes version of 1 Samuel chapter 30. So Saul was trying to kill David. Saul was jealous of the throne and understood that David was going to be replacing him at some point in the future and was trying to his best not to see that happen. And so David had to flee, and he'd already been on the run from Saul through the wilderness. And during this time, there were other men who had gathered themselves unto David, men that were disgruntled or had lost their estate and what have you. And so he accumulated, we think, several hundred of these men with their families. And so as Saul's pursuit continued, David flees to Philistia. And of course, these are the, the nemeses of the Israelites uh, during the time of the judges and the kings. And there's a, a certain Philistine warlord or king, Achish, that takes David in because, well, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so he takes David in and he gives him the city of Ziglag for his men and their families. Well, as we read so many times throughout the Old Testament, the Philistines marshal their forces to go out and fight with the Israelites. And because David is there on behalf of his benefactor, then he gathers his men and falls in line. And the, the Philistines gather their armies together before engaging the Israelites. And all the other Philistine kings and warlords are kind of looking at David sideways, like, what is he doing here? And they question Achish about it. <laughs> like, um, you realize that in the heat of battle, he could turn on us and try to ingratiate himself with Saul once again. And so they weren't comfortable. David understands. He turns around and heads back home. And this is where we pick up the story again in 1 Samuel chapter 30. We're going to begin reading in verse 1, this time in the New Living Translation. It says, three days later. Now, it was three days since David had left with his men from Ziglag to march and gather with the Philistine armies, only to be turned away and then march back. Three days had now passed when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziklag. They found that the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziklag. They had crushed Ziklag and burned it to the ground. Now, you may remember that these are the same Amalekites, the same people that had engaged with Joshua and Moses as the Israelites were coming out of Egypt. And God had kind of a bone to pick with them. And so he had commanded Saul to completely wipe out the Amalekites. And yet Saul disobeyed. He dropped the ball. And now it was David's problem. Because these are the same people that have now raided Ziglag, crushed it, burned it to the ground. Years ago, one of my favorite sayings was that failure on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part, right? But that's kind of what David is facing here. It wasn't his fault, Saul's fault. And now this is my problem. Failure on your part does not constitute an emergency on my part. I can't tell you how many times I, I did say that. And then I got into full-time ministry. Yeah, <laughs> So verse 2 says that they had carried off, the Amalekites had carried off the women and children and everyone else, but without killing everyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families because there were no bodies amongst the, the charred ruins of the buildings, 
They wept until they could weep no more. David's two wives, Ahinoam from Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal from Carmel, were among those captured. David, it says in the New Living Translation, David was now in great danger. We read it originally, he was greatly distressed because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters, and they began to talk of stoning him. Now, I have seen great men and women of God absorb so much into their lives and into their spirits and just take it and keep on going. But when you start messing with their family, when you start attacking <laughs> a man's wife, or you start going after his kids, <laughs> that, that's where the line has got to be drawn there. And I've seen those same men and women ever so gracious and willing to, to absorb the slings and the arrows of, of ministry that, that come all of a sudden rise up in holy indignation when their families become the target. And so these men, oh, they had endured quite a bit. But this was the final straw. And so they had left their homes. They'd left their country for, with David. They were loyal and true to him, but they were ready to stone him now because their families were in jeopardy. David, who was already an outlaw, already on the run and rejected by Saul, the king that he had faithfully served. He was now rejected by his allies of convenience, the Philistines, and now rejected by these men who were loyal and true and among the closest people he had. Can you put yourself in David's shoes for a moment and maybe feel what he must have been feeling? When the realization, I mean, this was personal for him as well. He had lost his family. But as the realization began to dawn and he looked around as the men gathered and could hear their murmuring and their, their sidelong conversations, to, he came to realize, ah, <laughs> I'm becoming the target here. And maybe the panic begins to, to rise a, a, into his throat that David had done nothing sinful. This wasn't the result of folly or neglect, and yet here he was, surrounded by people, yet separated, cut off, and alone, greatly distressed, isolated. Can you feel what David was perhaps feeling that day? I believe, however, that this wasn't the first time that David had experienced separation. You see, as a young shepherd, he had spent day after day, night after night, alone in the hills. Even when Samuel came to anoint the next king of Israel, David's father, Jesse, didn't think to bring him home from the fields. Jesse thought so little of his youngest son that he couldn't fathom that David might be the next king of Israel. How's that for a vote of confidence? Huh? How about the rest of the family all gathering, all your brothers lining up, and you're completely isolated and separated from everyone else? Hmm. Everyone else gathered to meet the prophet, this big event, David, alone with the sheep. But it was during these alone times that David came to realize and appreciate that he was never truly alone. 
It was during these times, isolated in the hills, that some of the, the greatest, most open and vulnerable expressions of worship that we have in history. 75 of the 150 psalms were attributed to David. And they sprung from, from this time, these worships. And Psalm 23, perhaps the best known psalm, many scholars think it may have been his very first, inspired by these times in the hills. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside the still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. I want you to, to catch the change in the pronoun right there. Before it was he, 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 but all of a sudden David changes and he, he uses the pronoun thou because while David talked about God before he went through the valley of the shadow of death, somewhere in that valley, somewhere along that walk, something changed in his relationship with God. When he was alone in that dark and low valley, it became no more talking about God, but he was now talking with God face to face. That relationship had changed. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Hallelujah. He came to realize in that dark valley of the shadow of death that that was where he found the presence of the Lord that would never leave him, that he could always dwell. It didn't matter where he found himself. He could dwell in the presence of the Lord forever. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We try to fill. It seems like we try to fill. And I'm as guilty as the next person. We try to fill our every waking moment with something, with work. And I'm the chiefest of sinners. I had to apologize more than once to my wife for prioritizing work over her and my family. But we try to fill our lives with something. If it's work, it's work. Conversation, the Internet, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok even. Oh. Music and video games, right? Sports and, and news and oh, news. Just do yourself a favor and turn off the news. Right? It, it'll infect your spirit. All right, that's not in my notes. That's free this morning. But there's never a moment, it seems, that we're not trying to stay connected and filling with something, almost as if we're afraid to be alone and afraid to be disconnected, separated from the world around us. The American Psychological Association a few years back identi identified a, a new condition called the fear of missing out. The short is FOMO. And it's defined as a pervasive apprehension that others might be having rewarding experiences from which one is absent. This social anxiety is characterized by a desire to continue, stay continually connected with what others are doing. FOMO is also defined as a fear of regret 
which may lead to a compulsive concern that one might miss an opportunity for social interaction. We've, we've created this, this social media and news and network and everything that, that we feel that we have to be a part of. And if we're somehow missing something, we, we, the anxiety begins to raise within us because we might be disconnected. And we, we tweet something or we post something on Instagram and we just, we just sit anxiously waiting for the comments and the likes to roll in because we are afraid of missing out and being somehow disconnected. But there are times, Urshan students hear me this morning, there are times, God-orchestrated, God-ordained times, when we are by His design to feel alone and disconnected. Not that we are alone, but we are made to feel that way. Every great and godly fig figure in Scripture went through moments, even seasons, of separation and isolation to varying degrees. Even when there were people around them. Job, surrounded by his friends, but very much alone. I could go through the list, every one of them, a Bible study in and of themselves. Noah and Abraham, Moses, David, Gideon, Elijah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, John the Baptist, Peter, Paul, John on the Isle of Patmos, even Jesus himself. Eli, Eli, Lamak Sabachthani, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now we can cut ourselves off, separate and disconnect ourselves by wrong decisions and poor judgment and sin in our lives. We spurn God's wisdom from his word and reject the godly counsel of leaders and mentors in our lives and thereby disconnecting ourselves from the body of Christ when we break covenant relationship with God. I'm, I'm not talking this morning about our, our own foolish self-destructive acts that leave us blaming God or others and failing to take responsibility for ourselves. In those times that we've got one foot in the world and one foot in the church and we don't feel like we belong anywhere, we've disconnected ourselves. In those moments, we're complicit in our own self-delusion. God help us. Issues of sin and self-will that keep us from the presence of God very much need to be dealt with. And let me just say that you cannot manage sin. You cannot manage sin. There is no one big enough. There is no one spiritual enough. There is no one who has lived this, this apostolic life long enough who can manage sin in their lives. The only recourse that you have is to repent from it and cut it out of your life. There's no way. There's no other way. But I, I'm not talking about those times, though if you are facing such a time, you need to get your face before God and repent. But this morning I'm, again, talking about times and seasons designed by God to isolate us, even from our closest friends, as David was. Because in those moments, we are then faced with a choice. Do we gravitate to our friends and our family to resolve our separation and our isolation, or do we gravitate to God himself? Do we look to people to fill our time and our plans, or do we learn to rely on God for his solace 
and his guidance. Do we listen to the words of friends and family as well-intentioned as they may be, or do we train our ear to hear the voice of God like that still, small voice that Elijah heard that night alone on the mountain? Well, God has certainly given you and I family and friends and mentors and leaders in your life, and I'm thankful for those, but God does not want a relationship with you through them. He wants a relationship with you directly, directly with you. Your pastor, your parents, they are not proxies. They don't stand between you. No, it's you and you alone with God. Hallelujah. That's what he's desiring. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Reading our opening scripture once again. David was greatly distressed, for the people spake of stoning him, because the soul of all the people was grieved every man for his sons and for his daughters. But David encouraged himself in the Lord his God. God designs and orchestrates such moments to reveal if you will encourage yourself in him, in the Lord your God, not in movies or music, not in friends and family or other relationships, but will you encourage yourself first and foremost in the Lord? So I, I have heard that, that phrase from this, this scripture much of my life. David encouraged himself. I've heard it taught and preached, and, and sometimes we can take phrases and they become almost church speak. Well, what, what does it actually mean to encourage yourself in the Lord? What, what does that mean? You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps somehow? Or, or do you have the power of positive thinking? Or, or you awaken the giant within? Or I, What does it mean to encourage yourself in the Lord? Well, let's first talk about what it doesn't mean. Looking at David's example, what it doesn't mean, David didn't blame others. He didn't point fingers. He said, well, this is not my fault. This is Saul's fault. If he'd done what he was supposed to do, we wouldn't be faced. He didn't blame anyone else. He didn't lash out at those threatening him. He didn't get all righteous and, and holy. How dare you pick up those stones? No, he didn't lash out at them. He didn't beat himself up. Say, oh, woe is me. Suck his thumb and throw himself a pity party. He did not allow his feelings to dictate the reality that he was facing. And he did not forget what he had been taught nor forsake the foundation of his faith. So what did David do? The word encouraged there literally means to seize, grasp, hold on, strengthen. Which begs the question, to what did David strengthen his grasp? To what did he hold on in this circumstance? On what did he strengthen his grip? And I submit to you this morning that he remembered the anointing that he had received. He remembered the victories that had already been won. He remembered that day that he alone stood separate from anyone else to face that giant that day. Hallelujah. He remembered and held on to the destiny that was upon him. He seized upon on these things in that moment, he held firm to the fact that he had learned so many years ago that surely, surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Hallelujah, hallelujah. No matter how bad things get, how alone you feel, 
Hold on to God's promises for your life. Hold on to the words that have been spoken into your spirit because this is exactly the time that you need to most encourage yourself in the Lord by taking God at the word that he's given you. Especially at this time. There are those in quarantine and isolation, separated and disconnected. Maybe your family has undergone it before you even arrive, but we have students today who are going through it. I realized in about my early to mid-20s, perhaps the age of some of you this morning, I realized uh, probably at around 24 that I had unwittingly defined my security, my connectedness to God's will and the, the trajectory that I was on that I had defined these things by a predefined checklist of life. Education, check. And none of these things are wrong. It, it's just that I had placed my security and connectedness within them. I had finished high school. I had gone to college. I had check. Education. Car, check. Career, right? check. New car. Check. Marriage. Big check. Oh, yeah. Home. Check. Promotion. Check. Baby. Check. Minivan. Check. <laughs> 401K. Check. Check, 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 check. And I, I, this, the, this was the trajectory, and this was this predefined checklist that I was going through, and I was checking it all off just like I was supposed to do. But I realized around that time that the American dream cannot be the constraints within which we allow God to work. Let me say that again. The American dream cannot be the constraints within which we allow God to work. Because when things go sideways in life, your checklist won't be enough. My checklist wasn't enough. When your parents separate and divorce, nobody puts that on their checklist. When you lose your home because of layoffs, that home that you checked off the list, and now it's gone. When a brother or sister, son or daughter, mother or father receives a diagnosis that leaves you stunned and feeling helpless, and just questioning, why, God? When friends walk away from this truth, and it makes you even question your own apostolic identity. When people you love pass away before their time because there's a worldwide pandemic going on. Your checklist won't be enough during these times. In a crazy, upside-down world that's shifting and uncertain, there's only one thing that we can hold on to, that we can seize and tighten our grasp upon. And that's the word God has given us. His very presence as he speaks into our spirit, to the promises that we know are true. Oh, we may need to relinquish old hurts and faulty worldviews and maybe even some close relationship, but we must determine to buy the truth, to hold on to it at all costs, 
Hallelujah. No matter how much we have to sacrifice, we must buy the truth and sell it not. Hallelujah. No matter how isolated or alone, disconnected or, dis or distressed you may feel during these times or the times to come, no matter how unworthy that you think you are, God has chosen to place the Holy Ghost within you. Can you wrap your head around that this morning? Because I can't. The creator of all time and all space wants to dwell within us. He does not make mistakes. He knows the plan that he has for you. He's dreaming dreams incessantly for you. Hallelujah. Don't believe the lies of the devil or your own self-doubt, but hold on to God's promises to this truth. People may let go of doctrine during these times. We need to hold on to it all the more. People may let go of holiness, but we need to clutch its beauty all the more at this time. People may let go of godly heritage, but we have to grasp it more firmly than we ever have before. We've all heard that desperate times call for desperate measures. So what are the desperate measures? When David encouraged himself in the Lord his God, what are the desperate measures then he resorted to? Verse 7 says that he said to Abiathar the priest, bring me the ephod. These are the, the three things that David did. Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought it. Then David asked the Lord, should I chase after this band of raiders? Will I catch them? And the Lord told him, yes, go after them. You will surely recover everything that was taken from you. The three things that David did is, number one, David engaged his spiritual authority. You need a pastor. You need a pastor. You need a spiritual authority not to be your proxy, not to be the priest that is between you and God like it was in the Old Testament, but to help facilitate your relationship with God. You need a pastor. Number two, David sought the face of God. You need a prayer life. You need a prayer life because this world and this flesh is coming at you each and every day, and you need to pray every day to try to overcome it. And thirdly, David submitted to the word that he had received. God told him to go, and he went. You need to participate. You cannot receive a word from the Lord and then sit and do nothing. You have to submit yourselves and obey it. Nothing will undo your momentum more quickly than failure to submit because God cannot bless disobedience and lack of submission. And you may think, well, Brother Fulbert, I'm over here. I'm obeying in these areas over here. I'm submitting over here, but I'm not doing this and this. Is it really this important over here? Is it really important for me to wear my mask when I'm, you know, <clears throat> mm, we got some conviction rising in the house here. This message this morning is inspired by something I witnessed years ago as a young person. My pastor had, had preached on a Sunday evening and a uh, good message, and people had come to the altar. They'd responded to the word, and now the, the worship was beginning to wind down. You know, it was sort of like the, the twilight of the service, and folks were beginning to disperse, and some were headed towards the door. And but there was one woman who continued. She stood front and center, arms raised, face raised, voice raised, praising God weeping and praising God. And all of a sudden, something shifted. And instead of things continuing to widen down and the lights go off and the doors lock, no, the worship began to pick up again. 
And somebody near her began worshiping and weeping and praising. And then somebody beside them, and it began to spread throughout the whole church. And before, in just a, a few seconds, the whole church was engulfed in this praise and worship and weeping all the way from where she stood at the front of the altar all the way to the back. People that were headed out the back door arrested themselves and turned and began to intercede with her. And I don't remember just how long the church was lost that night in praise and worship. But prior to the next service, I commented to my pastor about that resurgence in the spirit, how that swelled in that. And he mentioned that it was because of that one woman who was facing what he called a ziklag experience. She was in a desperate, desperate place, the details of which he did not share with me I only found out years later just a few of the things. But she was in a desperate, desperate place. But she was determined not to leave that night until she had encouraged herself in the Lord. It didn't matter who was there or not. Or not. They, they, everybody could have left and they could have shut off the lights and locked the doors. She was going to stay until she had encouraged herself in the Lord. Because for all intents and purposes, it was just her and God alone in that moment. Stand with me, if you would, this morning. It's easy to characterize a Ziglag experience when you see your life before you seemingly burnt to the ground. Things have gone sideways. You've suffered loss. You've experienced heartache and pain, separation and disconnectedness. You feel all alone. It's easy to think that oh, this is the Ziglag moment, but that's not the Ziglag experience. For David, that moment was not ultimately about the smoke and the fire and the charred remains of Ziglag. It wasn't about the distressing circumstances he was facing. But for David... That moment was about being right where God wanted him to be so that he would encourage himself in the Lord, his God, and draw closer to him than he had been before. The beautiful irony is that when you face a Ziglag experience like David did, when you encourage yourself in the Lord, when you hold fast to what God has spoken into your spirit, the victories that he, you have won in the past, and you can strengthen your grip on those things when everything else seems to be so tenuous, when you, you engage your spiritual authority, when you find yourself in prayer, when you submit to the word that God speaks to you, the, <laughs> the beautiful irony of the Ziglag experience is that David pursued and he recovered all. There was not a child or wife or, or possession that, that was lost that day. And everyone, all those very men who were about to stone him, who had cut him off and were about to use him for target practice, they all shared in the victory that day. And that is the beautiful irony of the Ziglag experience because it never affects only you. Just like that lady in my home church years ago, it's contagious. 
And David's victory was shared by all those who were with him. When you trust God and encourage yourself in the Lord, people take notice. People take notice. They know. They can see the difficult circumstances. They can detect the distress in your life. And they're watching to see how you react. They will take notice. And your victory will then affect all of those around you. Hallelujah. 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 I know under these conditions, as the praise team comes, I know under these conditions, we can't really gather together. We can't pray together like we're so accustomed to doing. That's all right. It's many times a good thing to entertain the presence of God on behalf of someone else. But this is not one of those messages. Because this is a message about entertaining God and His presence for yourself. So that you are alone with Him. Despite the pressure, despite the separation, despite the loneliness or anxiety that you may be feeling. Because you're only going to resolve that when you encourage yourself in the Lord and in the Lord alone. Hallelujah, hallelujah. As they begin to pray, sing, and to praise the Lord, I encourage you, begin to pray. Receive this into your spirit. Pray where you are. You may stand, you may sit, you may get on your face before God. But if you need to repent like we talked about, then this is a good time to do it. But if you need to encourage yourself in the Lord, I challenge you to do it. Not only for yourself, but for the victory that will come after you do so. The victory in your family, the victory in your youth group, the victory throughout the Urshan community. Hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, Lord. David's example, Lord, to encourage ourselves. Not in all of these other distractions of the world. God, but in you and you alone, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. God, you've allowed these things to transpire and come into our lives, God. They've passed through your hand, and so we trust, God, that you've given us the tools and the grace to overcome them, Lord, as long as we turn to you. In Jesus.